Welcome to Regulate Tech and the first episode of 2022 with me, Nicholas Berry-Lumland and... With me, Richard Allen. It's great to see you again. Uh, it's been a long holiday break and um, as always when the New Year's here you feel enthusiastic with all kinds of ambitions and plans and goals, etc. And, you know, I've said to myself, I should start exercising and see how that works out. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it, it is that that season, right, where you're looking into the new year and, and trying to figure out what you can do with all of this, these oceans of time suddenly available to you. So we thought we would discuss planning, which yes. is, is sort of one of the, it will turn into one of these craft episodes where we talk about how we, how we approach the craft of public policy, and specifically in this case, the the craft of planning. So let me start with a with a slightly provocative question: Why should you plan in public policy when you're going to be completely dominated by what happen by what happens in the outside world? You're going to be reacting to politicians and legislative proposals and attacks from competitors, etc. Is is planning really something that you should engage in as a public policy function? I mean, I, I think, yes, although you're absolutely right, I think some of the failures that we'll get into of, of sort of uh, planning and setting objectives in the policy world, I think stem from the fact that methods that are have been developed for spaces that are entirely under your control, things like developing software, which you control, are sort of taken across into this environment that we work in, where it's out of control, <laughs> like most of the time, like you literally don't control most of the stuff that's happening. And so that's an issue. But having said that, uh, and having lots of sort of bitter experience of trying to do planning where you know, um, it just didn't work out the way that you expected and the planning, you build these plans and then sort of three months later, they're kind of completely irrelevant or, or, or misjudged. Anyway, having had that bitter experience, I still think it's worth doing for two reasons. One, for the team itself. And, and if you go back to why people develop these pr- planning frameworks, it, it, you know, in large part, it was to motivate teams. You you have a goal that you're heading towards and that that brings a whole team together and gives them focus. And without it, you can be unfocused and and you can lose morale. So a lot of a lot of the planning is about internal team morale that you feel you're on a journey together. You you've kind of got some idea of the desired destination. Um, the other one, which perhaps is sort of less good for the team itself, but but good for the company, is uh, so they can work out whether or not you're good at your job. <laughs> so so planning in a sense is you saying to the rest of the company this is what we intend to do and you know we're willing to be held accountable for whether or not we do this thing <laughs> so for the rest of the company it's about being able to judge the effectiveness of their policy team for the policy team itself it's about having a direction of travel uh, hopefully one that sort of inspires the team to feel coherent and feel like that they're working together towards a shared objective so I'm a huge fan of planning and think it's crucially important. But I, I also sort of tend to side with uh, Eisenhower, who has reputedly said, you know, um, plans are useless, planning is everything. And it's yes. because of the, not because just of the sort of morale issue, which I think is important to get everyone together and sort of have a discussion about what it is that we do, but also because it's the diagnostic that allows you to figure out uh, what's actually going on in the world around you. And Richard Rummel, the strategic guru, has this framework in which his, his first step, sort of any kind of planning or any kind of strategy work, really, is diagnosis. 
And the idea is that you should gather everyone, you should write down a page of what you think is going on there, the, the actual story you think you're living, and then compare and then contrast and try to get to a, the common place. So when you bring the team together, you do improve their morale, you give them a sense of, of purpose, but you also are able to give them this sense of shared reality. I think that's that's if you can get to that point where where you have roughly the same idea what's going on out there, that's going to be so incredibly helpful when the pace picks up and there's lots of incoming and and suddenly you're stuck in this this maelstrom of events that that we often get stuck in as policy people. I think that's right, and actually that diagnosis phase, I actually think we often get wrong. <laughs> Uh, and it's often a triumph of um, hope over experience. So, so this idea, and I think very, particularly in, in the policy world, you sit down, you kind of go, this legislation is coming, and you start setting objectives about how you're going to change the legislation or stop the legislation. And in most cases, you know, that's completely unrealistic. We can dig into that. There, there are some sort of systems, I think the US system is a little bit more geared towards this, where the legislature has the right of initiative and there's lots of different bills and you could set an objective about, you know, killing a bill or stopping a bill because there are lots of them and most of them won't survive. But most of the places where we work, the the right of initiation of legislature sits with a government and the classic example we're familiar with is the European Commission. And when the European Commission sets out to legislate, it's going to legislate. Nothing's going to stop that. So, so your diagnosis is not, you know, should be, uh, uh, how do we operate within a framework within which something is definitely going to happen, as opposed to let's set a bunch of objectives about stopping a thing which is unstoppable. Um, and I say, I think there's often, I felt in my own work experience, a, a kind of reluctance to admit uh, that you've lost before you've even begun <laughs> So when it comes to legislation. Once you've admitted that, if you do your diagnosis correctly, then you can plan for what you can do realistically within a framework within which, for example, you know, the general data protection regulation is going to happen. There is going to be privacy legislation that's going to be, you know, potentially onerous and expensive for your business. What can we do within that framework as opposed to, you know, it, 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 this sort of in some way being seen as uh, something that you could control or shape in any meaningful way? I think that's so important. And I also think that another part of diagnosis is being really brutally honest about where you are, both as a team and as a company, and seeing yourself, but preferably in the diagnosis phase, you take some of your most salient and insightful critics and you have them be your baseline and then try to, to extrapolate from what they're saying. And this is, this is really emotionally hard. Which is interesting yes. because planning is, is sort of always seen as this intellectual process where you, you're like a chess player, you're planning out your strategies, etc. Planning is deeply emotional. It's about sort of realizing your limitations, to your point. I mean, the geological processes of the European Commission are going to happen whether you like it or not. It's like, you know, my plan is to stop this earthquake. That's, that's yes. unlikely to be very helpful. But but there is also this sense that, that you you have to figure out what kinds of, of real perceptions there are about you out there uh, and I think this is something which if you're a good leader of a planning process you you force people to look outside in rather than inside out and I find that I find that to be often underestimated as a part of the planning process and I think that's also where to your point we're telling the rest of the company what you're doing you actually also have to tell the rest of the company what's realistic to be expecting. So it's a bit, it's not managing expectations as much as sharing reality. And 
one particular failure mode of planning is when you have a clear diagnosis for your team and and you're realistically appreciating your chances, but you're not communicating this and the rest of the company expects you to kill bills or to, you know, uh, craft enormous tax exemptions for your company or whatever it might be. And I think I think this part of planning as communication, as sharing reality and sharing the emotional truth uh, about where your company is, is another super important part of this. Sorry, I mean, I, I would describe, you know, I think a, a really effective contribution that policy professionals can make to companies is by being meteorologists. They're reading the ah. weather and they're understanding what's happening and, and uh you know, they know, you know, if winter is coming in the policy sense, it's no good saying our plan is to make it summer. <laughs> it's not going to be summer. You know, so if you really understand is winter coming and how cold is it going to get? And if we know that winter is coming, we can create the right kind of insulation. We can reduce the cost of winter and the burden of winter by planning for that winter. Now, we as can a sell policy team, I mean, if we, we can. Get, we can Exactly. We can have fun in winter. You have yes. fun in winter. We can, we can enjoy it, but there's, but don't pretend it's not going to be winter. And again, I've been in, I, I'm guilty of this myself of where, you know, the company goes, oh, but can't you just make it eternal summer? And you're like, yes, as a policy professional, I'm going to make it summer. And you're not, you know, it's much better to say to the company, look, winter is coming and here's how we prepare for it. Now, again, what you've got to do if you're really good at your job, though, is you, you predict the right kind of winter, how, how cold it's going to get, what it's going to be like. And there are risks, again, if you don't do this diagnosis correctly, that you undersell, it's harsher than than you'd anticipated because you were perhaps too scared to tell your colleagues just how bad it was going to get, um, even though you've understood that. Or you oversell. You say it's going to be it's going to be minus 30. It's going to be a disastrous winter. And it's actually, you know, just down to zero, yeah. uh, just down to freezing point. And you've just you've oversold it because you've again, not not done your diagnosis correctly. Um, so a diagnosis that predicts what's happening, I think is one of the biggest contributions a company, a, a, a team, a policy team rather, can make to a company because it allows everyone then to plan for it. And it actually allows, we, we always talk about, you know, um, we're getting these measurable objectives. It, it actually allows you to create a measurable objective, which is, look, here's the baseline. If we if we weren't planning for this thing, this change in the legislative framework, so your content regulation, we predict, predicts in our last episode, is going to happen in 2022. Right. So you have a baseline that says, look, if we if we didn't correctly diagnose that change in the weather, this is what it would cost us. If the policy team helps us to understand what the change in the weather is going to be and we can put the insulation in place for it, then it's going to cost us this much less. And it starts to give you a framework where you can actually measure the difference because you were able to correctly forecast what's coming down the track. Not change it, but forecast it, which is quite different, I think, from a lot of the objectives that policy teams have, which is all about changing the weather, not forecasting it. No, it's such a good point. And I think I'd I'd really like to make a plug here for for a a set of techniques that are usually um, all collected under the, the heading of scenario planning. Um, and the, the, the idea of scenario planning was, was developed uh, by Rand in the US and Herman Kahn uh, under the 50s, where they sort of they were really interested in the future. Uh, then came famously to Shell uh, with a French uh, guru, Pierre Wark, who together with a lot of other people developed this into to a craft. It takes a little bit of time, but doing it occasionally with the right people is incredibly helpful. And, and to give you the really short view of what it means is, 
that you essentially you check which the critical changing factors are, the critical factors affecting your situation or the future you're interested in predicting. And then you try to figure out which of those you can affect, which you can't affect. And from that sort of rich understanding of the, the, the causal map that you're in, you can craft different, different scenarios. And, and if forecasting is about predicting what's probable, scenario analysis takes you one step further by giving you the spectrum of the possible. And I think that's really helpful because if you can go to another function of your company and say, look, here are the kinds of winter that I think we might be facing. And by the way, here are a few indicators that will show which winter we're heading into. If it's a really cold November and you know we see this, these kinds of weather systems approaching, it's going to be a horrible winter. If, on the other hand, November is quite mild and we see this, we might get to a better. So going from the probable and predicting to the possible within the scenarios is, is a really good way also of of trying to communicate to the rest of your company. Because it's hard, to your point, you come in either being you know, the boy who cried wolf and saying the, the European Commission is going to outlaw the internet, or you come in and say, it's, it's just business as usual, don't worry, it's going to be a 0.005% tax on what we do, but that's, that's all good. And, and if you come in with the scenarios instead, you can actually start to help people think in these terms. And I think really good policy planning when shared with other other functions, helps them make decisions that are on the margin five to ten percent better for the business as a whole, because they have in the back of their mind this possible landscape of scenarios that that could unfold, and that makes them better decision makers. So, so one way to to frame the usefulness, going back to your metrics question of the policy team, is you know can we see this improvement in decision making because people are taking into account the political landscape, the policy circumstances, etc. And, and I, I do think that that's a, that's a, if you're really serious about diagnosis, and you should be, uh, usually people spend far too little time on this. I mean, if you go back to your own organization, and I, I know we were guilty of this in, in the early days before we, before we started to sort of dig into this much more. If you look at the diagnosis, it was usually a, a half hour conversation where, where somebody uh, opined on what was happening and the rest were sort of, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then you dig into what should we do about it? And this, this, is a, this is another thing that I think is fascinating about planning, that it ref, it, you, you have to refrain from moving to what should we do about it before you know what's going on out there. And yeah. at least, I mean, I think you would agree that both Facebook and Google were filled with people who wanted to, to know what we're doing about it. That was sort of their instinct and intuition. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's a culture clash. And if we, if we look at the sort of um, the classic framework that I think Google used, lots of companies use, is this thing called OKRs, Objective and Key Results. And it was developed at Intel originally, which is, you know, an engineering company. And they can set an objective. The objective is we want a chip to be twice as fast as last year's chip. And here's our key results. Here's how we see, you know, whether we've developed the technology that allows us to get to that twice as fast chip. Now, everything in that world is under their control. I mean, they, in a sense, they, they design the hardware, they design the software, they're sort of doing all of the work. Um, and that thinking often then sets up this culture clash. Well, I'm sure you've had it as well from colleagues in the tech space who kind of go, um, well, th th there's this problem. And their diagnosis is often, you know, the politicians are stupid. And if only <laughs> we inform them of the right way to go, 
then they will change, you know, what they're planning to do because they just obviously haven't realized how stupid they are, which is not a great diagnosis. Um, but but then you do end up though with this culture with all, you know, lots of love and respect for colleagues, though. But they'll kind of go, "Can you just sort of comms this away or policy it away, uh, like you would with a you know a coding problem? You just oh that thing's too slow, so can you just kind of re- rewrite the code so that it runs more quickly?" Well, in code world. Yes. In policy world, no, we can't just kind of rewrite things to make this thing go away um, with something we've got to live with, something over which we have very, very little control. And we, we shouldn't have, actually. <laughs> Laws are made by politicians, not by companies. So that culture class is something you've got to overcome. And I often struggled with it um, to be able to say to a colleague respectfully, you know, you, you know your domain. And in your domain, yes, you have all the levers. You can change things. I know my domain, and in my domain, I have very few levers uh, that I can actually pull here. And to have that conversation and still have them respect you at the end of it, because their conclusion yeah, yeah. is, like, well, then you're completely pointless. Like, why <laughs> have we got a policy team? You can't change the legislation. Well, you've got a policy team to help you in other ways. They can help you. You know, the fact that I'm sitting here predicting the weather is helpful to you. <laughs> Uh, I don't, you know, I don't need to go out and change the weather to be useful. Change the weather will be lovely, but ain't going to happen. <laughs> but can we just sort of get the value out the fact that you have somebody who's an expert colleague who can help predict the weather, which can help you with your engineering sort of plan for the steps you need to take to, to cope with the world as it's changing. And this is That's a, a very difficult conversation. It is a difficult conversation. And it's a difficult conversation because, and we've, we've touched on this before in the series, we, the, the nature of a political problem is radically different than the nature of an engineering problem. An engineering problem has all of the qualities of, of sort of a logic problem where it's true or false. Um, and, you know, it's even different from a legal problem where it's legal or illegal. The nature of political problem is how do we live together? And that's sort of the fundamental question of the polis. That's sort of what Aristotle uh, and Plato and all of the classical thinkers struggle with when they think about, about political problems. And I think that the answer to a political problem, the answer to the question of how do we live together is we can't, you're stupid. <laughs> that, that, that can never be the answer, right? That doesn't work. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like, um, I think it's, it's, it's very much about understanding that there are different contexts here for what the solution to a problem is, which again uh, brings us back to, to the diagnosis phase and the importance of sort of highlighting that these are different domains. They have different, yes. different kinds of problems. It's not just different problems, it's different kinds of problems. And I think that's, that discussion, there's a ton of value in that because it makes the company multimodal. The company can then operate in an engineering space, but you can also equally understand that it's not going to make a tax question go away by donating X million dollars to a charity. That's not how that yes. works because that's not living together. That's sort of trying to pay off the political problem. That doesn't that doesn't solve the actual fundamental challenge we're facing. But I want to I want to pick up on the OKRs question. So so we've agreed that policy needs to plan, if for nothing else, because the planning process is this this enormously important process of communication and understanding and diagnosis and, and not least bringing the team and the rest of the company into that same shared reality. That's that's a process that if you're not doing that, you're certainly missing out. And you're always going to be judged by criteria that are set up by people who understand very, very sort of little of what you're trying to do or the or the usefulness mm. you're bringing. Now, let's talk about, so you, you mentioned OKRs. 
there are a couple of different ways in which planning can can happen, and OKR, OKRs are are sort of one of them. Let's let's dig into OKRs a bit. Did you use OKRs a lot? Uh, I mean, sort of yes and no. I think it, um, uh, Meta was was less sort of uh, upfront about OKRs, but it did have these company wide objectives, and they would they would be, you know, which I think really fall within that framework. There would be things like we want our application to load more quickly on people's mobile phones, and that's a company wide objective. Uh, and then underneath that, the key results would be, you know, over that half, the incremental changes that you've been able to make that contribute to speeding up the application. So I think we did broadly work within that framework, but less explicitly, I think, than Google, where that language was the, the actual OKR type language, as I understand it, was sort of much more upfront. Yeah, OKRs were a big thing at Google. It occasionally became too big a thing because there were too many. <laughs> I think somebody made yeah. an inventory at some some stage of my, my stay there and, and found like 210 company OKRs. And and there's something about focus here that's important. If, if you have 210 objectives, you have no objectives. There's a reason yeah. the word priority had no plural form in the English language for a long time and so <laughs> so it's uh, but the google approached this in in i think a, a, a fairly uh, creative way and sort of started to think about okrs as applicable to other functions too um and and i think they form a really powerful framework there's a great book by john durr uh, measure what matters if you're interested in the okr model and want to dive deeper into it but you could you could sum it up as saying as an objective is the long-term thing you want to accomplish so for example um uh, uh, improve our market presence in our top uh, key markets where um, uh, our market reputation in our top 10 markets. And then the KRs are binary things that either happen or do not happen. And they really need to be binary. You need to be able to look at them and say, happened or didn't happen and say they can be an improvement in sentiment analysis from the key stakeholders that we care about at 10% year on year. That didn't did or did not happen, and you can evaluate against that. Having the KRs then sort of inf- all relate to the O um, means that you have a sense of what you want to, where you want to go, and how you're going to get there. So it's the it's the goal and the path. Um, mm. I think that's helpful. I think it is is uh, it actually it contains another one of those shared reality points where if you're careful about this, you actually discuss whether or not you think the KR is leading to the O. Is this increase in yes. sentiment really related to your reputation? And that teases out the, the sort of causal patterns in a market in a nice way. So we used it a lot, yeah. and, and I'm a fan of it, and I'm sort of stuck with it. But I don't think it's the only one. What other planning uh, frameworks do you think are interesting? So, so, I mean, the other one is a sort of companion to that, but there's such a world of acronyms. It? It's terrible. <laughs> yes. But the other acronym that, that everybody uses, which is really just to add to those objectives, but I think we're just pulling out, is this notion of SMART, ah. uh, that the objectives must be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound, so that when you're when you're sort of thinking of objectives, they can't you reverse each of those. Uh, as opposed to specific, they can't be sort of generalized, they can't be unmeasurable. Uh, they shouldn't be impossible. They shouldn't be irrelevant, and they shouldn't be open-ended. So, so you're sort of you're trying to make sure that you have a framework where these things are realistic. And and that again, just to pull that out, that's where I think some of these sort of tensions arise when you're applying the framework to policy world. For example, you might have a I don't know an objective which is we've got you know two star rating in the app store, and we want to improve that. And you'd have a debate and go well. You know, three star rating is that underselling ourselves, and four star is that 
impossible. And then maybe we'll settle, we'll set our objective at three and a half stars. And I think there are different theories about what percentage likelihood you should have of achieving this, uh, whether it's 50% or 70%. But you, you, should, you shouldn't set something which is, is too easy, 100% likely to achieve, or something where it's 0% likely to achieve. So say in that example, we've got a two-star rating. We can do the engineering, we think, in the next six months to get us to definitely to three stars, hopefully three and a half stars, but we're not going to set the objective as four because that's impossible. That works nicely in this engineering world uh, where you can try and make the changes. Um, you should be quite specific that the objective is real ratings because <laughs> if you're an unscrupulous company your objective <laughs> says we want we want three and a half star rating well we'll just buy a bunch of ratings you know so you've got to be quite clear exactly how, uh, what you what you want those to be now take that over to our world and and you kind of go well our reputation's in the toilet and so we want you to improve our reputation with policymakers. and if you think of it in the same way you'll go wrong uh, because you're trundling away. And I remember setting these goals, like we want to improve our reputation, like we you know, improve our rating in an app store. You're busy working away. Something comes from left field. Somebody in the business did something two years ago or one of your customers does something that is so outrageous <laughs> that your rating plummets through the floor. And that's nothing you could control. And so there you've set an objective which, sounds good on paper it sounds like the other one is where we got the objective like the engineers have now we're going to improve our reputation with policymakers by x percent if we can measure it but in reality the the forces at play are so varied and so out of your control that that that's not i think a realistic objective for you to have it's one where you know uh, you are not actually uh, your key results you know, will not necessarily lead to that objective changing. It's something completely left field that may uh, throw them yeah, up. So, so, so just a flesh out the OKR smart piece, which I think, as I say, leads us into trouble sometimes in our It really does. And I think I think it's it will get back to what to do when, when plans mm. fail. And we should talk specifically about that. But before we move on, I, I mm. think that it's useful to sort of think through what other kinds of, of planning yeah. methods or methodologies or frameworks we have. And there's, there's another one uh, that I remember we used... Um, uh, I, I'm not sure it's used anymore. It might have fallen out of uh, usage, but it was quite interesting. It was was put together um, essentially by uh, two people at Google, um, uh, Bob Borston and G.J. Collins, who decided to sort of just get a planning framework for all of the team because they wanted them to think together, which I think was, uh, was a really smart move. And and the way they did this, this was they borrowed from different kinds of political uh, campaigns. And so they used the political campaign as the planning framework. And, and, and they, the way, one way they framed it, at least, uh, was that they talked about it as the OST model. The O was the objective. What is it that we want to achieve? We, you know, we want to win the election would be the campaign, the campaign uh, planning. Uh, and then the strategy S, the S, was how are we generally approaching it? What is it we, we want to do? And the T were the tactics, the concrete things on the ground that you would get done with dates and expected outcomes really in detail. And, and sort of it was a wide variety of tactics you could apply. Now, this, this is a super interesting framework, and it's, it's really helpful for some acute issues. I remember, without giving away any trade secrets, <laughs> that, that one, of the, mm -hmm. one of the early problems we had was uh, that the copyright debate was, was sort of generally harmful to the tech industry's reputation and, and uh, troubling. And, and um, 
there was a there was a plan set up with the objective of uh, essentially turning the copyright debate into uh, into a manageable thing for us, winning the copyright debates. The strategy, very generally, was make it an economic issue, not a moral issue. That was sort of the overarching policy that that was applied. And then the tactics were about try to speak as much as you can about commercial negotiations ongoing as we're being bashed with moral arguments in the press. Try to show that we're good market act, all of those different things. Now, that framework, the notion of sort of a political campaign as your planning framework, is, is naturally, I think, going to flow into public policy because it's so adjacent to the political world. What, what do you think? Where is it, Where yeah. are its strengths and weaknesses? I mean, so I, I had something similar where I would define um, as the objective, what did I want other people to say about the company? So that was a sort of nice way of framing it. You know, um, where are we today and where do we want to be? Uh, you guys you know, uh, are, are a, an evil force when it comes to young people. They are, they're all encountering terrible problems on your platform with sort of where you are. Where do you want to be? Your platform is one of the safest places on the internet for young people. So you could you ha- kind of had a goal in mind. I, I And the way I'm going to understand that is if people start saying, oh, you're a safe place on the internet, then I've won. I've sort of achieved my objectives. It's very similar in a sense. And actually, yeah, I've done a lot of political campaigning, and that's the same with political campaigning. You know, you want people to say the economy is safe in the hands of your party. Uh, the health uh, service will is safe in the hands of your party. Your party is best to, to deliver COVID recovery, et cetera, et cetera. So it's thinking in terms of what people want to say about you. So I think that really works well in the political context. Um, I think the challenge in our public policy context is just how small a player we are <laughs> in that. And so, how again, how little control we have. And I'm going to keep coming back to this theme, and it sounds like an excuse for not doing things, but it's not. It's just, it's realistic. Uh, and actually, democratic, you know, look, the, the, the frameworks for regulation and policy are set by... Uh, uh, politicians by the public there's just you know there's a huge array of people who are setting the framework for what we expect from everything in society including internet services and internet services feel big in their own world but they're only you know very small part of that whole domain and and they're never going to be big they you know in terms of all of the considerations that come into play so I've been thinking a lot about this sort of since moving on from that uh, professional role, but um, I, I now think that the right kind of objectives are uh, uh, to decide what it is that you can put on the agenda. So I think you can realistically, as an internet company, say, I would like these things to be on the agenda. So if we if we look at something like the content regulation debate that's going on now, it is realistic to say, look, I I, I don't think people are talking enough about I don't know the the challenges of uh, um, when you use artificial intelligence. You have to make a decision whether you want to, you know, err in favour of taking down more bad stuff at the cost of taking down some good stuff, or err in the favour of leaving up the good stuff and therefore also leave up more bad stuff. That's like a really fundamental question. I don't think that people are talking enough about that. I want to put that on the agenda. And to your sort of tactics. Uh, um, you're going to have a whole bunch of things where you release papers on it, you hold events, all of these things. And success is people are talking about that thing, that issue, these hard questions for artificial intelligence systems, and they wouldn't have done had you not intervened. Now, 
what you can't do, I think, realistically, is predict the the end result of that <laughs> debate. They may debate it and then decide, you know, still to pass what you'd regard as inadequate legislation. But your success was in having it debated, in setting the agenda and putting things on the agenda. So that's where I sort of come to, I, you know, having sort of thought about this for a long, long time now is when you set an objective that says, look, I want this outcome in a legislative or regulatory space, in most cases, that's not something that you really are able to control in any meaningful way. But I want this thing to be debated absolutely is under your control and therefore an objective that says, did you get that thing debated? Was it debated in the right places by the right people at the right time? That is a measurable objective that that you can say was only a result of the intervention of the policy team, assuming this thing was not going to be debated absent your intervention. So it's sort of a, it's taking where you've gone, but it's almost uh, uh, the 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 sort of a strategy becomes the tactics, <laughs> or the objective becomes the tactics. It's uh, the objective, you know, is in the delivery of of material that provokes a debate, r- rather than your objective necessarily being that this will lead to a specific outcome. And it, it, I think it shows very clearly that 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 framework of planning also really requires hand in glove work with comms, right? Because you you have to be yeah. really close with them. Yes, yeah, you need, you need, this is, this is sort of working on all fronts. So it's, as I say, um, a debate is happening. UK government is going to regulate content, providing services. We know that. Uh, um, how, how are we able, well, if, if we have important things, I mean, maybe we're just fine with it, but assuming there are important things we think are not being covered in the debate, how do we get those on the agenda? And you're absolutely right. It's a combination of things that happen in policy world and things that happen in comms world. And so, again, uh, I think a very useful tactic is not, again, it's not deceptive if you do it honestly and openly, is to say, I'm going to invest in producing uh, uh, papers and material about, uh, you know, the issue that I think needs to be on the agenda, and then we're going to hold events, and then we're going to talk to the press about it, and we're going to do sort of, I think, American terms, full court press around this particular issue to try and make sure that it's on the agenda and people will react to it. Um, in some way, and I think that in itself could be regarded as a an objective and a success if you achieve the debate moving on to that subject, and then and, uh, irrespective of the outcome of the debate, yeah. and, and, it, and it's sort of it, it is it is so close to the way that the political world thinks about what to brief and not to brief, for example, and and at the yeah. heart of this framework, and I think this is interesting for many different reasons, but at the heart of this framework is this notion that the way attention is paid is absolutely crucial to how the political landscape evolves, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And so you hope that by people paying attention to that issue, they'll make better decisions. I mean, that, that's obviously like why you're doing it. But I'm, I'm almost suggesting you, you limit, you limit your success criteria to the fact that it was on the agenda, uh, rather than setting yourself an impossible success criteria, or, or it's almost, it almost sort of, it's a reversing the logic. Your criteria is, look, I want them to change their mind. So I want them to do something differently. And therefore, I'm going to put this thing on the agenda, only as a, a sort of key result to get to my objective i'm saying that getting it on the agenda is the objective uh uh, and i say obviously motivated by the fact you think that putting it on the agenda is going to change things but but as i say in that i think that is realistic for a public policy team at a tech company to say to to sort of have as an objective make sure this thing is debated not realistic to say make sure the policymakers write the legislation this way or that way because that 
is not under your control. Yes, I, and 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 I think that the other aspect of this that's that's interesting is that if you if you're then thinking about this in a holistic way what you're going to do is you're going to list all of the different things that could be debated with the scarce amount of attention that we have political attention and you can go and have a look at them and you can say so which one would i prefer be debated more and which one would i prefer be debated less and then what you do is you sh you're you're actually really shaping the political landscape that you're operating in by by making sure that you have an ambition to allocate attention in a way that you think is is fruitful and helpful uh, to the company. Yes. Yeah. And and I think it's very good. You're absolutely right. Again, literally, when you go through a parliamentary process, which I do in my other life, in the parliamentary process, there are, you sit down, you go, we are going to debate this for five days. That's, you know, uh, five times six hours of debate. We've got 30 hours of debate. There are going to be, you know, 5,000 amendments that people could potentially table of which only a small number are actually going to get any serious debating time. So which are the ones that you think are important to be debated and, and work with people to get those debated? But I think, and again, it may be a, a sort of a subtle shift, but the, the shift is from uh, from the debate being a means to an end to the debate being an end in itself uh, from your point of view as, as, a, as a team. Um, and actually that is again it's the company's interest to do it but it, this only works well where it's actually aligned with the public interest where you have identified things that are genuinely important and missing from the debate that are under represented in the debate and you're making sure those go higher up the agenda because they're important issues that need addressing now again and it, classic it, one in content yeah yeah and it's not sort so of the, the, the tail wagging the dog phenomenon let's start a war over here so people don't talk about the what happened in the white house kind of thing <laughs> yeah that doesn't no, it's work. really trying to improve things it's really trying to improve that i'll give you an example right now which is one that keep coming back to but um uh, when you want to try and identify people who are grooming young people online for sexual purposes, it's, we all agree that's a, a very like troubling and dangerous behavior. Um, you can do that uh, by reading people's messages and, and looking at what they're doing online. That's very privacy intrusive. There is a clear conflict between safety interests and privacy interests in that space. And that's the kind of thing where, say, if, if you look at a piece of legislation, it kind of goes... We want you to keep everything private uh, and we want you to deal with these groomers and that they haven't teased out what that actually means. That's going to be a problem when the legislation you know, gets onto the statute book. So, again, if you're a company where that's a really important issue for you, find a way to make sure that is properly debated during the passage of the legislation that's in the public interest. You don't know which way they're going to fall. They might decide, well, privacy is too important. So sorry. You know, if a few people escape the net, then tough. Uh, we think privacy is so important. Or they could flip the other way and go, you've got to make sure you absolutely do everything you possibly can. And we're prepared to set aside some privacy considerations in, in this particular context. But let's just get that all fleshed out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the kind of thing I think that is a real thing that might matter to a company. You can debate it internally, debate how important it is to you. And then the objective for the policy team is to make sure that that is properly discussed during the bill. Yeah. Whatever the outcome, 
Well, I had the pleasure of seeing you do this in an expert way in the discussion with the European Commission on the Good Samaritan rules and the, the anti-terror legislation. I remember yeah. you you put that on an agenda in a way that I thought was really helpful uh, to the ministers as well. So there there are examples of this working really well, and I think it's a it's an ingenious way of approaching the planning framework, which which gives you uh, sort of these three different planning frameworks to think in. One is the OKRs, which you can read a lot about in, in DERS, uh, Measure What Matters. And the second is this, this notion of OST, Objective Strategy Tactics, which is a political campaign format, I think. Sometimes it's called GOST with a goal and an objective strategy and tactic. I never could get the difference between yeah. goal and objective, but I, I think goal is bigger than objective. And, and, and I'm sure I'm going to hear from colleagues who are now saying I messed that up. Um, and, and the last one, which I really liked, is this notion of sort of writing your own agenda, the way you would like the yeah. agenda to look. And almost like stack ranking the questions you would like to have debated in a particular issue and figuring out how you can shape that agenda so it better reflects the public interest and the corporate interest as they converge in different places. Well, they'll not always converge, but they will converge in different places. Yeah. And, and I think that these three frameworks are really good. And, and just generally, I would also... Um, recommend that as you're doing this, you do it within the, the general framework of Richard Rommel's good strategy, bad strategy, which suggests that the first thing you need to do is diagnosis before you decide on a global yes. policy and consistent actions. And so Rommel is this, is this, I mean, so fundamental, um, you know, thinker and a foundational thinker in, in strategy that I think it, it would be a mistake to to, to not at least dip into his book and, and figure that out. Now, so we have our planning frameworks. We have decided that policy needs to plan, that there's value in planning in terms of communication, understanding, diagnosis. Now, we also have this other dirty little secret is that as German General von Moltke said, no plan survives contact with reality. <laughs> or, you know, yes. the Mike Tyson version of this is everyone has a plan until you punch them in the face. So <laughs> since you and I have repeatedly been punched in the face, <laughs> I thought yes. I would ask you, what do you do when plans go wrong? What are the most important yeah. things to sort of, you look at your plan three months into the year, we're in March and you go like, okay, that wasn't really what I hoped would happen. How, how do you deal with yeah. that? And what are the opportunities in plan failure? Yeah, so I think if, we, if you um, sort of follow the framework, I think we're starting to flesh out. So we, we've sat down, we've diagnosed uh, the, <clears throat> the landscape. We've done our scenario planning. And we've set ourselves the objectives of um, helping the company plan for the weather that's coming, making sure they understand what's going on and they're planning for it, and deciding the things that we want to uh, put onto the agenda, the political agenda, and make sure are debated over the next few months. I think that's actually a really good framework in terms of resilience to those changes. So if the if the signals are that the weather is changing, hopefully your scenario planning at least has given you some insight into that and then you can quickly kind of adjust internally uh if things happen that are totally outside uh, all of your scenarios then you didn't do very good scenario planning so so you should have you know hopefully in terms of that piece of of your work as the as the company political meteorologist hopefully that side is resilient in terms of the the second part of it which is where you're trying to set the agenda or put things on the agenda, uh, that again can get not completely awry because you, you thought one bunch of things were important and now events out in the real world have changed that. And there I think you do need to sit down uh, and revise. And so in a sense, your plan, uh, and you, you want to do this in a re reasonably planful way, but I think when you see that the uh, events are shaping the agenda in a different directions, you've got to sit down and go, 
you know, now what are our priorities? Because again, you mentioned earlier, attention, attention is limited. So as a, as a organization, we can command a certain amount of policy attention. We decided that we wanted to, you know, we pick five or six issues, whatever they were that we wanted to put on the agenda. Now we need to put different issues onto the agenda. We've got to make that adjustment and something's got to fall out. And again, this is a mistake I found repeatedly was, you know, you've got your five or six things and then over the half, if you're doing a sort of six monthly planning cycle, three or more things, three or four more things come up. And now you've got 10 things because you didn't knock three off to make space for the new three. So again, something as a piece of advice is, look, if things have really changed, I mean, ask if, ask if they've really changed. I think, again, really important consideration is, are these our strategic things that we're trying to put on the agenda? Or is it business as usual? Are we just reacting to the usual noise that goes on and the usual slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Um, and so sometimes it's just, you know, the stuff that is happening, in which case actually don't change your plan. And so so you can make a mistake by changing your plan for something that isn't strategic, but just because that's the noise that's going on right now and you've got to have a certain amount of your capacity like just dedicated to business as usual. But if things really do, really have fundamentally changed, then you've got to go back and say, um, put a new agenda item on the things you're trying to promote and importantly, take something off yeah. so that you're you're not like just overloading the capacity and doing everything badly. Yeah, I think that's the, the notion of sort of what are we not going to do if we do this new yeah. thing is supremely important. But I, I think it's also worthwhile just sort of pointing out that when you plan, you're not planning for 100% of your time. That doesn't happen. No. What you're planning for, I mean, if you're, if you're in a very volatile situation, you're trying to plan for, your ambition should be to plan for 60% of your time. So three days out of the week, you should be building things that actually really create a better position for you 40 percent two days out of the week you're going to be uh defending you're going to be blocking and tackling you're going to be dealing with all kinds of incoming and that's that's sort of a a really good situation to be in if you're if you're in a um in a very luxurious position, you're going to be able to push that up to 70, 30, perhaps, and you're going to be able to plan for, for 70% of your time, and then 30 will be blocking and tackling. That's the nature of public policy and government relations work. It's always going to have that component. And you're going to have weeks where you have 10% of your plans being done and 90% being firefighting. The importance of, of planning is, is not uh, to not respond to the world. It's to make sure that you respond to the world while you build your own position stronger in it. And, and so I think that's something that that is, is, if you don't bring that in early in the planning understanding, I think most people will be frustrated when the incoming starts coming. But if you can keep it then within the 40%, then your strategic plans should remain. But I agree, there are points where, where you really see shifts or you try to accomplish something and you fail. And, and those points where you, didn't reach your OKR or where your plan failed or your tactics failed or your thing didn't get on the agenda, they are so valuable because these yeah. are the learning opportunities where you as a team can get together and understand what happened so that you can actually plan better the next time and grow and learn as a team. And so yeah. one of the core first principles that we had, and which I think is really important, is that if, if a plan doesn't come to fruition, there's no blame. And this is one of the integral parts of the OKR uh, framework as well, that it's not connected to um, moving compensation. Because if it is, you get all of the wrong um, incentives for how you put up your objectives and your key results. You, you will sandbag them. You will, you will sort of uh, try to, to 
under promise so it looks like you're overperforming um, and, and you're never going to learn. Your plans should be designed to fail to some degree because that's how you make sure that you get the friction that you learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I just just to give an example of a, a, a sort of classic failure on my part was um, uh, the German Network Enforcement Act, uh, which has the very long uh uh, sort of compound noun name in German, which I will not attempt to mangle. But <laughs> that, that was one where, you know, we built a whole strategy around sort of explaining why this thing was a bad idea. Uh, and, and there were all these bits that were going to be unworkable and we were going to sign up a whole bunch of allies from a free expression point of view who would oppose it. Da, 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 da. And it turned out, you know, there was an election coming. Uh, uh, everybody sort of hated Facebook <laughs> in, in, in the political establishment in Germany. We had no friends, and and you know the whole plan just kind of like fell apart, and and it was just unable to cope with the political reality of what was going on. And candidly, now I look back, and and it would have been a much better use of our time to be thinking about how we planned for this reality, rather than investing time and energy in in fighting something that was a kind of inevitability. So that was a learning moment, and I think that has. You know, I'm not there now, but I think that that um, for the team there sort of rolled over into their working assumptions about other forms of content regulation in other countries. Whereas prior to that, the wheels coming off that particular approach, I think people would have said, no, we must, again, similarly try and oppose this in principle. What we now know is the political dynamics are so pressing that these kind of proposals are just going to happen and therefore you'll take a different approach. Um, but it, it took it took that. Uh, episode you know it uh, it took that uh, episode to learn about the dynamic and then having learned about the dynamic the smart thing is not to keep repeating the mistake that you made previously by just going well next time you know <laughs> yeah. where the same dynamic exists we'll we'll just we just execute the plan better no <laughs> it was the wrong plan uh so just executing the wrong plan uh multiple times and tweaking it and throwing more resources at it doesn't make it a good plan it's just the wrong plan it's very close to the definition to of do. insanity doing the same thing it, exactly, yes, repeat repeat yeah. yeah i yeah. i think that's right so i um and and you know on our side i think that for the longest time Time, we wanted to hold this line of not using any kind of artificial automated takedowns on YouTube and we thought we could hold that yeah. line and that was sort of one of our core objectives but it turned out that the world was not there the world was already somewhere else they sort of they didn't prioritize the the, the sort of free speech aspects of this and they cared very little about the liability aspects of this and so so that was one where we where we simply were not where public opinion was heading and we we had we had sort of convinced ourselves that this was really important and it had become a tenet of faith within the company, which is really dangerous. Yeah. Once your sort of company ends up thinking that certain things are, are issues of principle, et cetera, et cetera, they do blind themselves to what the outside world looks like. And it took a lot of, a lot of work to, to sort of get to, to a good place. And that was a typical case of let's stop this, uh, where, where sort of you, you can't stop winter. <laughs> and it was, it was yeah. really an example of your meteorological analogy, I think. And, and here's another thing that I think is, is, is interesting to think about in planning. And that is, as you go through your plans and you look at the ways in which they failed uh, or occasionally succeeded, hopefully, uh, there, there's a value in reflecting deeply on this and doing it in writing, actually writing this down, because then I think it becomes those 
operating guiding principles that you mentioned, it's rolled over into with the team. So it becomes a part of that intellectual capital that accrues over time as you're doing something. This is, this is literally the empirical evidence informing the knowledge and craft of a policy team over time. And you can do it with other people's failures too. So we spent a post-mortem yeah. for the uh, the Network Enforcement Act as well, where we were looking very closely at, <laughs> at you. And I'm sure yeah. you looked very closely at us when it came to the, the automated takedowns, especially since you were much yeah. faster to act on that. And so so I think it's um, it's you should be in the market for failures across industries and companies and try to figure out what did these people want to accomplish and why didn't they? And and those are just gold mines of, of experience and knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly my experience, I don't know if you share this, though, is that um, there is a tendency in tech companies uh, for everyone to run after the ball, uh, you know, the football, to get everyone's a forward. Kids <laughs> um, talk to run after yeah. the ball, <laughs> and ch- chase after it. And, and there, there were very few, um, I think, well, relatively little resource was put into looking backwards, certainly when you compare it with government. I mean, government sort of prepares for something, makes a change. And then they, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of sort of reviews of whether or not the change was effective. And I remember having people from, I've mentioned this before, British government, sort of in inside Facebook, and we we're doing some briefing on them, and 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 we kind of talked through, look, you know, this crisis happened. We made a policy change to change the content policy, so it did this, and they said, oh. And, and how effective do you think that change was? And everybody in the room was kind of silenced, like, well, we made the change and then we moved on to look at the next thing we need to change. And people were going, like, no, but, you know, you must have done a review and an analysis. And they're like, no. And, and so I actually think tech companies in particular, uh, there's very little resource or time and attention put into looking backwards. Uh, it's sort of something in the DNA, and that may be something that needs to change or could usefully change. Because you're absolutely right. If you're if you're planning for something in the future, you really need to have learned the lessons of what happened in the past. Um, and I s- certainly saw a number of instances when you were there long enough. You were a long time, so was I. It's like, oh, here we go again. Somebody's <laughs> come into the room and gone, why don't we do this? And you know, sometimes there's somebody there who can kind of go, we tried that five years ago and it was a disaster then. Why do you think it's going to be better now? Yeah. But quite often there isn't anybody in the room like that and off you go and you're, you you hear about it later and you go, they're doing that? Again? Really? really? You know, why? <laughs> Again? Yes. Um, and that's because we haven't captured that sort of folk knowledge of you know how much... Uh, to, to use your analogy, uh, how hard the punching was the last time we did it. You, you have it as an individual because you got punched in the face, so you're like got scars. Yeah, but these new, new folks Mike don't. Tyson, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> these new folks have not been punched yet, yeah. and I have to admit, a little bit of you kind of goes, "Oh, I can't wait to see them getting punched." Like <laughs> there is that. There is that. No, I think that's right. But it's such a good point, and I I, uh, I really like the way you articulated that. That there's too much, too, that, that there's too little time spent uh, in in retrospective analysis or review, and I think. The uses of history in, in, in sort of planning is just really essential. And, and it's, it's one of those exercises that I think is enormously powerful if you can get the right people in the room is to say, okay, look at where we are today. And then you describe where we are today. You know, we are in the middle of the tech clash, there's regulatory approaches everywhere, competition pressure is increasing, here's what's happening across the world. And you sort of just outline that. And you then ask everyone in the room to sort of sit quietly, write one page out of the story that brought you here. What happened to bring yeah. you here? And 
forcing that reflection around the narrative that you have in your mind of what actually happened. Because I think if you do that, you can uncover, you can partly uncover the, the sort of the, the gaps of understanding where people go like, well, politicians were stupid, then they became more stupid, and now they're really stupid. And that's the sort of only historical explanation you get to why you're here, which is wrong. And then you have sort of the ability to discuss, well, what did we do or not do during this time? Where, for example, can the speed with which we moved have been perceived with massive arrogance from the outside? So, so there's like this, this really profound value, I think, in history that you're teasing out here that, that should, should really resonate with people uh, as they're doing their planning. There is, I mean, what I certainly found was the company would be quite good at the immediate post-mortem. At the, there's, but what they weren't doing is somebody sort of coming to it six months or a year later and saying, okay, now now, how do we feel about this thing that happened six months or a year ago? And actually, I, again, I think that could be quite important because the risk of the immediate post-mortem is that every, if, if it does stick, so sometimes it doesn't stick and people aren't aware of it, but when it does stick, it, it's like it's created scar tissue and you can't go near there again. Um, and so to give you an example, uh, uh, you know, Facebook, there were instances where Facebook tried to exert more editorial control over what was going on in newsfeed, try sort of a little bit of picking winners and losers, got into all kinds of trouble. Everyone complained from left and right. And and I think that's created like a real scar tissue for them to go, oh, we don't want to be picking winners and losers. You know, the algorithm must work uh, in a content agnostic way. We can't get near. And and yet demand is now growing for there to be more intervention in, in, in those decisions. And yet you've got a company that's sort of super reluctant. So there are examples like that where you got burned the post-mortem was, oh my God, that was a disaster. It's now part of the company sort of culture or mythology to say things like that are disastrous. And yet a year or two years later, the world has changed. And now the thing that was a disaster a year ago, so some things that were a disaster a year ago will still be a disaster if you do them again today. But there are other things that were a disaster a year ago that actually you probably should be doing today. Yeah. Uh, and the way that you understand that is by actually having somebody, you know, look look at it with a little bit of distance and go, okay, that thing that was a disaster a year ago, I'm now going to spend some time trying to understand it with the, with the benefit of hindsight and see whether or not it's something we need to revisit or whether it would, you know, it's something that we just need to keep avoiding. Yeah, those spiky postmortems uh, tend to generate this massive overlearning that you're sort of overcorrecting yes. for them, and then you never correct back, and you're not putting it in a pattern. You're not sort of understanding. It's not really writing the history of what you did. It's just sort of having those traumatic memories flash up when you approach a similar situation. And I think, I think that's that's really really important to to get right. I also think the other point that I'd like to make is that one of the things that technology companies do really badly, I think, is that they're not doing post-mortems on things that went well uh, and teasing yeah. out what part of this was actually us and what part of this was luck. <laughs> uh, because it's like, if you're doing a, a post-mortem on, on your failures, that's all well and good. And uh, you should do it without interest in blame because blame just sort of clouds your judgment. You should understand the causal patterns and mechanisms that brought you to this particular bad outcome. But you should also try to do that with the good outcomes. Because if you're saying all of the good outcomes was us doing things correctly, then you miss the near death experiences involved in almost every success. And you miss the sort of things that, that happen to work out in the right way. And you will overlearn enormously from your successes, which I think is tremendously harmful for anyone because they, they sort of slowly become convinced that they're doing everything right. And, 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 and I think 
sort of a love of yeah. failure and a love of understanding the role of luck in your successes are equally important. That's right. And uh, just to, to that, an example would be on some of the political campaigning on on Facebook platforms, where you know there were uh, if you go back quite a way, and we all have to remember times before Donald Trump, where politicians were using Facebook to communicate with their constituents, and they were winning, and it was you know all sunny uplands, this wonderful sort of democratic tool, and then somebody comes along and gets elected, where people are. Uh, less uh, or more people are less happy about their election. Nothing has really changed substantively. It's the same set of tactics using the same sort of tools, but now it's really negative. And it would have been better, to your point exactly, perhaps to have looked at how politicians were using the platform with a more sceptical eye, even at the time when the politicians were getting elected were not as controversial as former President Trump. Uh, that might have helped inform the strategy when you did hit the controversial politicians, but because things were going well, we weren't spending time looking at it. It was all fine. It was all going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, now, history tells us that uh, a little bit more scepticism and analysis might have uh, avoided quite a lot of pain. That's right. And I think so. So, um, uh, what we've so far, we've arrived at the conclusion that planning is really important, that there are several different really good frameworks that you can use, that when your plans fail or when they succeed, you have an excellent opportunity to learn. Don't waste that. Make sure that you really dig into yes. it. And, and your point about the underestimation of history, I think, is so important to bring into this because I think at the point where you start to grow your company's history, and there will be, you know, some challenges with this from a from a pure sort of legal perspective, discoverability, but you should try to write your history, at least keep it in, in some way, shape or form so that that history can then inform your view of the future. Once, once you sort of you're doing all of this, at the end of the day, you're always going to be asked for metrics. So... Yes. How do you know, how do you keep score? What's the what's the yeah. so what kinds of metrics should we use? Um, what's your so, view so on the, that? Yeah, I mean the two areas that I've I've sort of settled on as as uh, ones that I think are really sort of useful and realistic objectives, smart objectives for policy teams. So, so one is this: have you have you read the weather correctly and helped the company prepare for the weather? I think that is. There is a metric there, and the metric they use the baseline, which is, I mean, it's money <laughs> often and time and stress of you know we we've blundered into something not being aware of the legislation and we're desperately sort of trying to catch up and apply it versus we've got a really smart plan for how we uh, will adapt to the regulation that's coming in a year's time, and you can work out the cost difference between those two. I think that's a, that's the kind of metric you should be looking at do the baseline and then work out what it actually cost you to comply with that regulation because you had the benefit of really good predictions, really good weather predictions. You you spent less on the insulation than you would have done on the heating had you not done anything uh, about it. So that's one set of metrics for that forecasting piece. And then the second one on the, on the influencing the agenda or putting things onto the agenda. Again, I think that's that is actually reasonably measurable. Uh, you can look at the baseline, which is, was anybody debating this, in my example, security privacy trade-off in detail around trying to catch child sexual grooming activity? You can look at it and go, it was debated once by somebody you know, not particularly influential. And you can look at what happened after we did all of our work and you can see that it was debated in all these different places. 
that I think gives you a metric. Uh, and, and as I say, I think that's a harder metric, a better metric. It's not the number of meetings you had. Mm-hmm. It's not that. Uh, it's about where was this thing debated? By whom was it debated? Uh, those are the metrics. So it's neither the purely mechanical, how many meetings did we have, nor is it the, did they change the legislation, which I think is unrealistic for other reasons, but you can start to quantify the extent to which something was part of a debate uh, from a baseline to to reflect the amount of activity that you did to get get it into that debate. And it's that so it's, distinction you often make between activity metrics and outcome metrics is really important because activity metrics, yeah. they, they can be a proxy if you're really hard-pressed to find a good way to, to measure an outcome. If you don't know how else to keep score, activity metrics can be some kind of indication that things are moving in the right direction. But outcome metrics are much more powerful, but it's about picking the right ones, to your point. You can't pick, yeah. did you kill the bill? But you can pick, can you see a robust debate and discourse about this particular issue that we think was under-discussed? And so, exactly. There, and, but then there's a third kind of metrics that I think is, is constantly undervalued, and it's capability metrics. And that is, what can we routinely oh, yeah. do well? And and to me, uh, you know, one of the ways which I think about public policy is like this technology tree in civilization, where you're sort of slowly developing your capabilities in different ways. Yeah. And you you have these core capabilities of intelligence gathering, where you go from early warning to 24-month visibility into a political landscape. You have political agency, where you go from knowing where the tables are, to having a seat at the table, a vote at the table, and around to a majority vote at the table. And you have these sort of network capabilities, where you go from just knowing who the right people are to have the right people reach out and convene with you in different ways so that you can have these networks that resonate with the political agency and and looking at that chart looking at that tree of capabilities and charting where you are and very sort of consciously intentionally moving up the different branches of the tree and trying to make sure you deliver more and more of that capability is actually not a bad metric because if you're, yeah. if you're serious about this and you can say, now I have in 10 different markets where I'm present, a 24-month visibility into the political landscape, and it's borne out by your ability to, to predict the weather, to your point, then that's, that's a, an asset for the company that allows it to make much better decisions. Or now I know how to get a, a route to a majority vote at these tables in these organizations. It's an asset. It allows you to do different things. And suddenly you've built this capability. And I think when you focus too much on your objectives, sometimes you end up in this situation where you say, we're going to do this and this and this and this. And you never ask yourself the question, in order to reach this objective, what do I need to be able to do routinely and well? And, and yes. I think that's something that, that many teams would benefit from thinking hard about capabilities as a core part of what they do. And it's, it's sort of, a, it's, it, and it's, it's not unique, right? It's a book, it's a page torn from the book of, of many military organizations who think in capabilities. What are the capabilities we have? And if we're adding a new capability because the company needs it, to your point, what capability are we going to retire? Because you were constantly yeah. investing in these and that's what's sort of giving you the versatility as a team to do different things. So that's another kind of metric. And so I, I think together, activity, outcome, capability metrics, they give you sort of core base set but then be innovative. Think about sentiment analysis for core people, for example. Think about, uh, and to your point, money. I think many policy people are really hesitant to put a price tag on their work because it, it, it sort of it looks as if it imposes too much credibility. But frankly, you know that there are some things that, that if they happen, you can easily calculate the order of magnitude cost it would have. 
So you can say, you know, if this particular if this particular line of argument or discourse or debate dominates the agenda, it's likely in the long term to lead to legislation that limits us in this way, and that's an order of magnitude cost in the tens of millions of dollars. That that you can do. And I think you can do it with some yeah. credibility. And it's not I don't think it's the wrong thing to do for a policy team because to your point earlier, when people tell you you're pointless, you're like, well, no, not really, because I am X percent of your stock value. <laughs> and there's, there's yeah. something to that that's, that's not trivial and, you know, important to, to also take into account, even if policy should, should be humble about the fact that we work together with a lot of other functions to accomplish that. Yeah, I think so. Money is a matter again. We go, uh, you're right. It's, we're often hesitant because it's it sort of sounds like um, you're playing into this notion that all you want to do in a tech company is make money and it's all about the profit margins. Actually, it's not that. It's about efficiency, I suppose, as much as anything. So it's not you. You can look at a I know a content regulation regime, and and you can say, well, you know, if we if we implement it in this way, it will cost us less money. Not that it's a worse regime. You're not trying to necessarily lower the regulatory burdens. You're trying to be efficient about the way in which you comply. And one of the ways in which you're, you can be efficient is you have a long lead time. You're not panicking. You're not going off down blind alleys. You understand the framework and you're planning for it. And you're hiring the people with the right capabilities early so that they're in place and can do the thing well. And you're not ending up in all kinds of lawsuits and things because you've implemented it badly. So, so it's, it's not about avoiding expenditure, put it that way. It's about spending what you do spend efficiently uh, is right. And we have this in the tax debates. You know, you can end up with a model where individual countries all come up with their own tax regimes and OECD comes up with you know, versus OECD coming up with a global tax regime. And you may prefer the OECD regime, even if it actually costs more in cash terms, because it is so much more efficient from the point of view of the company than having to comply with and pay and be in lawsuits and have dawn raids with armed police in 20 or 30 different countries. So it's a cost efficiency, I think, is the thing that we really focus, we should focus on and be credited with where we help the company to be efficient in terms of its compliant costs, as opposed to say simple sort of like, you know, how much money was it uh, uh, or, or trying to legislate to have the company not spend money. That's not the point is to spend it well. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and, and, and we should also add, by the way, that you should add an opportunity into this as well. So for those cases where the company can continue to evolve and develop new services, et cetera, and it's not held back when it launches a new initiative, that's actually also something that has to do with this broader question of, of company political environment fit, how they fit together. Yeah. You know, tech companies usually talk about product market fit, and it's a super important concept, and everybody needs to understand how that works. But there's also this notion of, of your company and its political environment fit and how that works together. And understanding and working hard to get that right is is equally important for the company's long-term evolution, I think. Absolutely. So yeah, we got it. We've we're clearly enthused. We like we've gone long yes, today. Yes, we went on for we, a long time. Like, and it's the start of the year. Yes, we've had some time off. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and I think this is it's a fascinating subject. We could talk much more about it, but we but we won't. But we won't. Um, at this point, I think we've at least uh, uh, left clear pointers around what we think about planning, what we think is important, and. Uh, uh, next week we're going to to uh, do something very different but before then you can find this podcast on your website which is www.regulate.tech well thank you and thank you for listening and keep your comments coming